Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook. And with me, as always, is Simon Elliott, Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. We had an interesting week last week, and it's been uh, quite an interesting week this week as well. Some might even call it rather torrid this week. We've had the budget, of course, in the UK, and we might briefly mention that. Uh, but the markets themselves have been in, uh, well, should we say, unforgiving mood this week, uh, Sam? No, I think that's right. It's been a bit of a rocky ride, to be honest. Uh, the FTSE All Share, so the UK market, is going to end up in uh, positive territory, just short of about 2%. But investment companies have lagged. They're struggling to make uh, positive ground this week. And really, it's the same things that we talked about last week. A lot of focused on rising inflation expectations, whether the recovery is going to run too hot and will fiscal stimulus kind of backfire in terms of what we're seeing in terms of the the long bond yield, whether we're going to see a demand surge, whether there's going to be supply shortages. So there's lots of issues for the market to really get to grips with. At the same time, uh, you know, we're seeing investment trust companies, particularly those with a growth or technology or Chinese focus, really struggle. So for instance, Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust that we talked about last week was actually down again 10% this week. I think last week it was down 16%. So it's actually off about 28% since it hit its share price high uh, in the middle of February. Um, and a number of the Bailey Gifford funds and the technology names and Chinese names not too far behind it. So it's certainly been a tough time for investors. Yes, it's only a few months uh, since we were talking about how well those particular trusts were doing. And it bears out what we were saying at the time, which is that you know you want to be wary of these things when they shoot up into the sky, so to speak. Fantastic returns over the short term. It did suck in a lot of money, I fear, in the last few weeks of last year. And I'm afraid it's been rather a painful readjustment here. Do you think that these uh, highly volatile movements in these trusts, I mean, does that reflecting a lot of selling or is it just defensiveness by the market makers? I mean, why, what, would it, what explains how dramatic these moves are, would you think, Sam? Yeah, no, it's a good point. Um, it will vary is the answer. Um, but certainly last week when we saw Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust sell off quite dramatically on one day alone, um, the volumes were very, very high. So there is definitely enhanced volumes in a number of the names, and one would suspect there are some retail investors slightly panicked uh, by what they're seeing in terms of the market direction. So it's not just uh, you know market moving prices around. I think there's a lot of focus on what's going on in the US uh, amongst the technology names, uh, particularly the FANGs stock uh, and where the NASDAQ index in particular is moving. So yeah, there's, there's quite a bit of volume behind this as well. Okay, so as I mentioned, uh, this was the week of the budget, uh, not normally uh, something we would talk about as having an immediate effect upon investment trust, though there were a couple of little angles there. I mean, the increase in uh, corporation tax that is promised, of course, I should say, it's always right to be wary about things that are scheduled to happen in two or three years' time rather than straight away because they don't always occur. But how has the, how has the market reacted to the uh, higher corporation tax, and does it have any particular implications for some kinds of investment trusts in particular? No, that's right. So it's worth noting that UK investment trusts are what we could describe as tax-efficient vehicles. So essentially, the vast majority will not be impacted by the, the change in UK corporation tax rate. There are exceptions, though, and you find those particularly in the infrastructure uh, subsectors. So the renewable energy infrastructure would be included. Uh, and in those areas, you do see there there are potential impact to their NAVs by the change in corporation tax 
rates. So it's one of the factors that make up the valuation and that reflects the, the way that these investments are structured. So it's a little bit difficult at this stage to know exactly the impact of the investment. And clearly it will depend on the level of exposure to the UK market specifically. So names such as Greencoat UK Wind, there's a clue in the title, is obviously fully exposed to the UK. So a name like that will be impacted. Uh, similarly, Bluefield Solar, JLN Environmental, and, and so on and so forth. Um, in fact, it's interesting, and we'll probably come on to talk about this, but only one of the infrastructure uh, investment companies has come out and made a, a declaration since the budget, and that was the Renewables Infrastructure Group, so known as TRIG, and they've actually made an announcement regarding fundraising, and they have said that the the, the change in the tax rate uh, would reduce their NAV by about uh, 3p, so that's 2.6%. So they're the only one that come out and actually made a declaration at the moment, but certainly we would expect them to be, the wider peer group, to be impacted. Right, except to the extent, I guess, that the market already anticipated this. It was actually trailed a little bit, wasn't it, that the uh, higher corporation tax percentage was one of the options that uh, the Chancellor, Rishi Shunak, was considering. Obviously, he's trailed a few other things that didn't actually happen, like capital gains tax and so on. I guess there was a limit to how far the, the market would price that in. But uh, have we seen any significant movement in the infrastructure trust this week as a result of the budget, or was it already to some extent in the price, would you say? It's a good point. And, and obviously, I was talking about the NAV valuations. But in terms of the share price, we have seen some of the leading infrastructure names uh, see their share prices soften. So probably the most obvious example of that would be Greencoat UK Wind. It hit a peak of about 142p in the early part of February. It's trading down at 127p at the moment. Now, whether that's because of the, the turmoil that was seen in the bond markets, as we've already discussed, or whether it's because people are factoring in this, this impact from UK corporation tax remains to be seen. But certainly, there has been some erosion in, in its share price. It perhaps just worth mentioning also in passing, I mean, you mentioned the tax efficiency of uh, investment trusts. Obviously, they are investment companies and their, their business is managing investments. But when you talk about the tax efficiency, you mean that because of that, they are therefore not liable to pay uh, corporation tax in, in just as a result of their trading activities. Yeah, that's right. So if you think about what an investment trust company does, it hopefully uh, invests and makes profits over time. It's not liable to tax on those profits. So what we would call capital gains tax. So it doesn't pay that tax. In addition to which the actual income it receives, and there are always exceptions to this, but uh, invariably it doesn't pay tax on that. Um, uh, the idea is that obviously it pays a dividend onto its shareholders who in turn will, will be subject to their own tax arrangements. So that's the idea of it being a tax efficient wrapper. And to be fair, in the same way that an open-ended fund would be as well. Okay, let's quickly um, talk about the index changes. There's, we've talked about these before, quarterly reviews. It does have an impact on one or two investment trusts as FTSE realigns its indices, the FTSE 100, the FTSE 250 and so on. And some investment trusts move from one to the other. Where are we in terms of that at the moment, Simon? Yeah, that's right. So this week, we found out the result of the March quarterly review, and there were a few investment companies involved in that. So Next Energy Solar Fund and BMO Commercial Property uh, found themselves relegated from the FTSE 250, so the mid cap, down into the FTSE small cap, while Chrysalis Investments is moving in the opposite direction. So I think we've we talked uh, in recent weeks about how well that particular uh, investment company has performed, and its reward uh, is that it gets promotion to the mid-cap. We've also seen a, a new name uh, into the, the FTSE All Share. We're going to the FTSE Small Cap, and that's the VH Global Sustainable Energy Opportunities Fund, 
which uh, IPO'd relatively recently. So that goes in. And all these changes happen after the market close on the 19th of March. And just again, to remind people, this means that uh, they then obviously become eligible to be purchased by index funds and so on, which is typically around 7 or 8% of the market. So that can have a positive impact. I guess it depends whether, again, supply and demand sort of sees through that additional demand coming through and, and doesn't reflect it. But uh, normally, as we said before, you do expect to see some impact from these changes, do we not? No, absolutely. And you're right. It's, as a rule of thumb, about 6 7% of the shareholder register will be in the hands of, of index trackers as a result of this. So where you do see the greatest impact is not so much the, the move between the different segments, so from the mid to the small or vice versa, it's really to go into the all share in the first place, or as occasionally happens to be relegated, and then you find you've got a bit of a stock overhang. Okay, so let's move on to corporate news. And there's something to say about mergers again in the investment trust sector. We've said in the past they're quite rare, and we've uh, seen at least one example recently. What's the news you can tell us on that front uh, this week? So this week, City Merchants High Yield and Invesco Enhanced Income announced merger proposals, uh, and they are stable mates. Uh, they're both a part of the Invesco group. And in fact, they share a manager. Rhys Davis has been responsible for both of them for some time now. The idea is that they would get merged and uh, renamed. The entity will become Invesco Bond Income Plus. Uh, and it will have net assets of over 300 million. The idea is that the investment policy of City Merchants High Yield uh, will not be amended. So effectively, Invesco Enhanced Income will be rolled into City Merchants High Yield. The combined entity will have an annual dividend of 11p, and that represents an increase on City Merchants High Yield's dividend at the moment, which is 10p, and that's targeted over a three-year period, and that's expected to be largely covered by net income. It's worth saying, though, that the yield for shareholders in Vesco Enhanced Income uh, will probably diminish as a result of this merger. They're being paid 5p at the moment, but it's obviously on a different uh, share price, so there's a higher yield on that one. So we're going to get a circular in April about this one, and the general meetings are expected in May, so it'll take a, a few months to get there. But you're absolutely right, we have seen a few mergers recently, and in fact there's another one underway within the Invesco stable already, that's Invesco Income Growth and Invesco Perpetual Select UK, or some of the UK leg of that fund. As we say, that is ongoing. And certainly there have been a number of voices across the investment trust industry calling for more in order to create larger and more liquid vehicles to give kind of better cost benefits. And certainly the fee will be reduced on the combined entity here down to 65 basis points. Has there been a material difference in the way that these two trusts have been performing over the last few years? I mean, how much of a change is it going to be if you are an investor in one of them? You mentioned the dividend, obviously, but in terms of the overall strategy got the same fund manager you know is there logic is there if you like kind of industrial logic to putting these two together is there something that uh, justifies it other than scale no it's a very good point that you make so over the last five years the nev total return for invesco enhanced income is up about 60 percent city merchants high yield is up about 47 percent and really i think that reflects the key difference between the two investment trusts uh, which is the level of gearing so uh, at the moment it's about 3% or so on City Merchants High Yield, and yet 21% on Invesco Enhanced Income. And that's that's always been the difference for any number of years, the level of gearing. Uh, Invesco Enhanced Income has always been a more highly geared vehicle. That's reflected in this particular period in terms of better performance records, but also a higher yield as well. So uh, just to put some numbers on that, it's about a 5% yield 
on a historic basis for city merchants, high yield at the moment, and 7% for Invesco enhanced income. Although it's worth mentioning in the case of Invesco enhanced income, uh, it's paid an uncovered dividend uh, in its last two financial years. Do we know yet what the gearing policy of this new combined vehicle is going to be, or is that something we'll have to wait for the circular to find out? I think, as I mentioned, the idea is that they will run it on the basis of city merchant uh, high yields investment policy. So I think with that comes the, the the promise that it won't be a highly geared vehicle. I think that's the idea behind it. And certainly in terms of the dividend that they're targeting for the first three years of 11p, that's broadly in line with the 10p that's been paid out at the moment on city merchants high yield. So again, I think we can infer by that that the gearing level will, will be nearer to city merchants than uh, Invesco enhanced income. So the fact that there have been two uh, mergers now affecting Invesco trusts, does that uh, suggest that this is a deliberate strategy on behalf of Invesco? Obviously, these decisions are made by boards rather than by the manager. But does it suggest that there is a, a strategy here by Invesco because they've lost quite a few trusts, as we've said many times, to kind of consolidate their remaining trusts and hope to do better result? Would that be a fair question or is that something that uh, we can't know at this stage? I think it's a very fair question. Uh, whether it's a correct assumption is, is a different matter. I mean, I think we talked before about the problems that Invesco have faced, uh, particularly on its UK equities desk, and there's been some personnel changes there over the last few years. I mean, in terms of its um, fixed income area, it, it's it's still very highly renowned and has performed very, very well over the long term. I think the reality with this particular situation is that you've got two investment trusts certainly not of de minimis size, but probably a little bit smaller than would be ideal. So uh, Invesco Enhanced Income has got assets of about 160 million or so at the moment, while City Merchants High Yield is probably around about 200, 210. So certainly not tiny by any stretch of the imagination, but I think the hope would be that by putting them together, they will um, attract more investors. Let's move on. We'll talk about fundraising. The markets have been choppy, as we've said, uh, but that hasn't stopped a lot of fundraising so far this year, uh, particularly in the renewables and infrastructure space. And so let's start with uh, one that's been completed. This is Sequoia Economic Infrastructure Income, SEQI. How did they get on? Yeah, they did very well, actually. They uh, announced that they'd raised £110 million for a placing uh, and the new shares started trading on Friday. And again, a similar pattern to what we've seen before, the proceeds will be used to reduce debt and uh, thereby enabling new investments. The manager believes the portfolio uh, remains well positioned for potentially a higher interest rate investment environment. Apparently 60% of the loans in the portfolio are floating rate and they've got very few long-dated fixed-rate loans. So that's obviously some commentary around where we find ourselves and the market's fixation at the moment. So that one seems to be a success. Let's talk about uh, the Renewables Infrastructure Group. You mentioned them already in the context of corporation tax rate changes. What are they proposing to do? Yep. So they are looking to raise up to 195 million shares at 123p. So that's equivalent to about £240 million they're looking to raise. Though They've said they could potentially increase that up to about 300 million. This is a fundraising that closes on about the 23rd or 24th of March, um, but they're also going to look to put an issuance program in place for up to 600 million shares. But again, it's the it's the kind of the same story. They've got about 65 million of debt drawn down at the moment, but they've also got outstanding commitments of um, over 390 million, of which a large chunk, over 313 million, is due before the end of June. So basically, th these funds will be used to meet those commitments. 
But uh, yes, we talked about the, the corporation tax impact. And obviously, if you're going to fundraise, you've got to put that kind of disclosure in the marketplace. And they've also given some colour in terms of the target dividend for the financial year for 2021. And that's 6.76p. So, I mean, they've been trading very well, the Renewables Infrastructure Group. So presumably, they will have no trouble raising some money. We don't know how much they'll be able to raise. Uh, they trade at quite a big premium or one of the bigger premiums, I think, in the sector. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. We've got them on about a 17% premium or so at the moment, but you know, it reflects that it's a it's a large company now. It's a two and a half billion pound company and with a yield of on a historic basis at least of five point two percent. So it's large liquid and has an attractive yield. Okay, so then let's talk about Next Energy Renewable, which put out an announcement this week. We talked about them in the past, they're looking to raise some money, but uh, what's what's the announcement there? That one struck me as quite curious. Yeah. So again, I think we talked about these guys a few weeks ago. I mean, they were looking to IPO to raise about 300 million, but they came out this week to say that actually their IPO has been delayed. uh, And that's in order to allow a number of institutional investors more time to complete due diligence uh, and they'll provide a further update in due course. And all funds remitted by investors in the initial issue will be returned, as of course you would expect. So, no, you're right. It is a slightly uh, unusual development as much as there has been a lot of money raised in this space. And this is the first one that's relatively high profile that uh, hasn't been able to get across the line. But as we talked about before, IPOs are very tricky. We're, We're clearly seeing a bit of a change in market sentiment at the moment. Who knows? That may have proven a factor. This was also a little bit different from some of its peers the portfolio was going to be equally weighted between funds managed by Next Energy Group, third-party funds, and direct investments. And that's the kind of structure that we haven't really seen before. But clearly, they will be disappointed. I mean, a huge amount of time and indeed costs go into try and get a, an investment company launched. So uh, a disappointing uh, result for them. They no doubt will be hoping to, to come again and get this thing away. Finally, under the fundraising, let's talk about Tufton Oceanic Assets or SHIP. Another good uh, moniker to have. What are they proposing to do in terms of fundraising? They're looking to hold a tap issue for up to about 25.5 million shares, uh, just short of a dollar 98 cents, uh, which is a small premium to their NAV at the end of December. And this is a quite an interesting story, actually. This is, a, as the name would suggest, a leasing play and container ships. Turn the clock back 12 months, uh, and they were having a pretty torrid time of it. Uh, as indeed most investment companies were back in March last year. I think they were down about 30% in share price terms that month alone. But actually, since then, they've they've come back quite nicely. And, and I think the story here is that they've, they're seeing quite a, a strong pickup in terms of demand for their product. And they talk about um, some renewals that they've been able to do recently on a couple of their container ships, and that they've been done at high yields. And the forecast run rate yield has improved to 13.5% from 12.7% in recent times. So I think there's a kind of economic reopening story here and how they're in the right place. The yield uh, on this one on a historic basis is about 7.5%, and it's got a market cap of about uh, not too far off $250 million. Yeah, so that's interesting. That's certainly consistent with this idea that the recovery that we're seeing is basically stronger and faster than perhaps many people realized at the time, a year ago at least. Uh, That certainly is interesting. It certainly bears out what's been happening in the commodity markets, for example, where there's been significant rises in many commodities. And we heard this week from the Bank of England, they expect the recovery in the UK, at least, to be faster than anticipated. And I think the latest uh, US jobs figures, which came out uh, this week, 
may have something to do with a similar kind of story. They're much stronger than uh, people originally expected. So that's all consistent with a stronger than expected economic recovery and it creates opportunities for people like this. You're absolutely right. Before we move on to some results, we've got some important results, so we need to press on. But it might be worth just mentioning, it came out with a budget, the result of the review by Lord Hill, formerly a guy called Jonathan Hill, was a European commissioner for a while, into uh, the ways that money is raised in the London stock market. Uh, and that may have some um, consequences for uh, the investment company universe. You may have heard me mentioning in the past how long and expensive it is to make uh, corporate changes in the investment company world. You have to issue a prospectus for lots of things. And I think that's uh, one of the recommendations that Lord Hill is making is that uh, there should be some uh, easing of the legal obligations on investment companies and other companies raising money when they come to issue new shares. Do you have a comment on that, Simon? I think that's absolutely right. And uh, the AIC held their annual conference this week for their non-executive directors. And this was one of the areas that was highlighted. And I think that there is an idea that following Brexit, there is an opportunity for UK financial services to lose some of the the red tape and some of the costs uh, around regulation and and really uh, kind of push on. And I think this is one of the areas that, that fits into that. So um, let's hope they make some progress on it, because I think it would be good news for the investment company sector. Yes, I mean, I think in particular, the references to uh, secondary issues, when occasions where you have to publish a circular, uh, which is, as I've uh, said, a rather exhausting process to go through, <laughs> very expensive, and you end up with a document which is lots of pages long. Uh, I think the one that we've issued for the liquidation of Jupiter UK growth runs to about 70 pages. I don't want to um, cast aspersions on anybody here, but I think that it would have been possible to produce something that, that covered the gist of what we're doing in uh, in rather fewer pages. I'll put it that way. Um, you know, there's a lot of repetition and there's a lot of legal language, which is sometimes impenetrable as well. So that, on the on the one hand, is good. On the other hand, of course, you know, one of the, uh, the great strengths of the sector is that we do have these very strong legal requirements. And uh, it doesn't mean that uh, uh, we don't want to return to the period when we have a lot of uh, perhaps uh, rather flamboyant companies raising money rather too easily in this country. So let's move on and talk about some results, starting with the Alliance Trust, a uh, very popular trust, been around since 1868, not doing quite so well as they perhaps might be hoping. That's right. So they had their annual results for the year ended 31st of December. NAV total return was up about 8.5% in that time, and that compared with a rise of 12.7%, so just short of 13% for the MSCI or country world index. In share price terms, they were up about nine, nine and a half percent. In terms of earnings per share, they were down actually 22% in the period uh, to about 11.2p, but they've actually increased their total dividend with regard to 2020, uh, and that was at 14.38p, up 3% year on year, and that's the 54th consecutive annual increase, so very much an AIC dividend hero. But in terms of that underperformance uh, in the year, that was a result of being underweight some of the large cap technology names, uh, obviously the e-commerce companies, uh, and there were a few specific stock detractors as well. And the board made some interesting comments with regard to ESG and whether they would uh, ever get to the point where they would exclude certain types of stocks uh, from the portfolio if um, they felt that a positive change could not be brought by engagement alone. But as you say, a slightly disappointing set of results for Alliance Trust. As people may remember, it adopted a multi-manager approach uh, on the 1st of April 2017. So we're coming up on about four years now. And Willis Towers Watson uh, were appointed to run the uh, equity portfolio. 
And over that time, it's it's been broadly in line uh, with the index, the NAV performance, uh, share price a little bit further behind just because of that discount widening out. But I think I think it's pretty fair to say they haven't really kind of pushed on to the point where they could demonstrate a consistent outperformance. Clearly a difficult year last year just because that market leadership was so narrow, as as we all know and have discussed before. So they may be feeling secretly rather quite pleased by the events of the last couple of weeks, seeing these technology names selling off. They may think that would vindicate their caution last year. Who knows? We'll have to see how that goes. So they're doing a little bit better than they were before, but they haven't yet moved up again to the level perhaps that they were hoping for. But there's still time, obviously, for that. Let's move on to Midwind International. They produce some interim results. How has that uh, particular trust been doing? Yeah, decent set of uh, results for Midwind. The six months to the end of December, NAV total return was up nearly 15% or so, and that compared with a rise of 12% for the MSCI All Country World Index. In share price terms, even stronger, about 18%, up 17.6%. Uh, and again, so a strong period. The investment team there, so Simon Edelston, Alex Illingworth, and Rosanna Bucheri, um, they're very much driven by themes. Uh, they identify um, themes that they uh, adhere to in terms of their stock selection. Uh, and obviously, a number of those work very well for them in the period. It's it's our areas such as automation, online services, scientific equipment, uh, and so on and so forth. Though they did make the point in the results that their emphasis on high quality companies in less cyclical areas means that um, performance could struggle a little bit when uh, markets are rising on cyclical factors. Yes, we're hearing that story a lot, obviously, from a number of trusts that have done pretty well in the last few years because we have had this strong rotation into more cyclical value stocks in the last few months, quite marked in November it was at least, and that obviously having some bearing on their relative performance. Let's move on to Murray International, again, the one we mentioned not so long ago. This is run by uh, Bruce Stout as the manager. It's an Aberdeen Standard Trust, and uh, what have they had to say? So they have their annual results for the year ended 31st of December. Uh, their NAV total return was up about 1% or so over the year, and that compared with a 7% rise for their benchmark. In share price terms, uh, share price total return was actually down about 5% as the uh, premium rating effectively uh, disappeared during the course of the year. Their proposed final dividend means that the total dividend for the year is 54.5p, and that's an increase year on year, probably up about 1% or so, or certainly above IP, RPI. And that's actually the 16th consecutive year of dividend growth. So that doesn't make them an AIC dividend here. You have to have a 20-year consecutive year record in order to qualify for that. But I think they have emerging heroes, I think is the terminology they use. So Murray International, very much an emerging dividend hero. Uh, but they use revenue reserves in order to pay that dividend. And, you know, again, interesting report. Bruce Stout, a very experienced investor. Uh, there's a big weighting towards Asia and Latin American uh, equities in the portfolio, probably about 44% or so. So that one is in the global equity income sector. And the other two, Alliance and Midwind, are in the global sector. So what's been happening there? I mean, there's quite a wide range of discounts there. Obviously, Scottish Mortgage, which is the biggest, is presumably now trading at a discount, which could be an opportunity for some people. How does that compare to the Alliance and Midwind? How are they trading in comparative terms? You're right. So Scottish Mortgage uh, Investment Trust, there has been some volatility uh, around its share price and NAV. Obviously, we have seen the discount open up. And in fact, the Investment Trust has been involved in, in share buybacks. And that's a pattern we've seen before with Scottish Mortgage, that they, they seem quite prepared. They don't have a hard and fast discount target, but they seem quite prepared to buy back their shares if and when a discount opens up. 
In terms of Alliance Trust, they've averaged between about 6 and 7% discount over the last 12 months, and that's pretty much where they find themselves at the moment. And again, they've used their buyback program over a number of years, actually, to keep their discount around that level. And in terms of Midwind International, that's consistently been trading on a premium. They've been issuing shares into that. They've been re-rated a number of years ago on the back of their strong NAV performance. They're probably trading on about a 3 or 4% premium or so at the moment. And that's broadly in line where they've found themselves over the last 12 months. And that could be interesting to compare that with what's been going on in the next sector we're going to talk about, which is the flexible investment sector, where we've got two of the better known perhaps names in this one who have reported. And we've started off with RIT Capital Partners, RCP. Uh, They've had their annual results out. How have they been faring? Yep. So they had their annual results for the year ended 31st of December. Their NAV total return was was very strong in that period. It was up about 16.4%. Uh, and they measure their performance against RPI plus 3%, in which case it's 4.2% last year. So they outperformed, obviously. And also the MSCI All Country World Index was up 12.7%. So decent level of outperformance. However, in share price terms, the share price total return was actually down slightly, down about 0.4%. And that reflects um, the fact that it was derated in the year. It probably ended on a discount. Now, they have bought back uh, a few shares Uh, But that's obviously been detrimental to performance overall. But it's a very interesting portfolio. It's uh, they've been quite uh, cautious in where it's been positioned. So the net quoted equity exposures averaged about 43% last year. And and some of the key themes have included healthcare in China, which have been positive for it. And they also have a number of uh, private investments that worked well during the period. So indeed, a lot of people own that one. Uh, I have to confess I'm one of them. They had a poor period for 18 months or so, but it has uh, recovered strongly. And so that's encouraging. The next one is Ruffer Investment Company. They're also in this sector and they have a very clear policy of trying to avoid losing money in any 12-month period. Uh, They produce some interim results. How uh, have they been doing? Yep. So this was the interim results for the six months to the end of December. And in that time, their NAV total return was up about 6.4%. And in share price terms, it was even stronger at 9.1%. So actually, if you look um, to your point about the 12-month period, they were up in NAV terms 13.5% last year. Uh, And obviously, that compared with a fall of about 10% or so for the FTSE all share. So again, a very interesting investment manager's report for Ruffer, as you'd expect. They always write a good report. The equity exposure was it was negative overall in, in 2020. However, what they did do is they rotated into cyclical stocks uh, for the second half of the year, and that proved to be positive, and they increased their equity weighting uh, as we went through last year from about 30% to 40%, uh, and they took some profits in gold and then some US tips as well. So that bias to cyclical value stocks as well as protection against a market calamity. So um, they're trying to have their cake and eat it, really. Yes, I spoke to them or listened to them recently, and uh, they're quite proud of the fact that during the the three big bear markets we've had, if we count last year as a bear market as well, they've actually gone up in value. Their shares have gone up in value rather than declining during big sell-offs, the bear markets in 2000 and 2007. So it is a it is an alternative approach, and one that's very much geared to uh, capital protection. They tend to be lumped in a category with uh, the likes of uh, capital gearing and personal assets and so on. And they all have fairly similar records over the longer term. It's interesting, I think, to notice, even though they have quite different approaches in a number of ways. Let's talk on now about to some other results. Uh, let's start with uh, Strategic Equity Capital, SEC. We've mentioned them before. They've had some interim results. 
We've talked about the fact that their performance has been relatively disappointing. Do their results bear that out? Well, in, yes. For the six months to the, the end of December, this interim results period, their NAV total return, uh, they're actually up 18%, but that compared with a benchmark return of uh, nearer to about 29%. In share price terms, they were up about 19%. The discount narrowed in a bit, but they made the point that they underperformed uh, their benchmark largely because they were underweight or had a low exposure to more cyclical companies, which again is something that we've heard from a number of people in this space. But really the big development for strategic equity capital this week is the fact that uh, the board have announced there's going to be a general meeting on the 30th of March. And this follows the requisition by two shareholders, uh, Ian Armitage and Jonathan Morgan, uh, who own about 8% or so of the share capital. Um, the resolutions that shareholders will be asked to consider will be the continuation of the company. And if that fails, the second resolution is looking to um, realise the portfolio. So the board uh, clearly don't think this is a particularly good idea. Uh, and they made the point in their announcement that in consultation, that they believe that about 40% of shareholders that they've to- been able to talk to so far are in favour of continuation. So we'll find out at the end of the March uh, what happens there. Obviously, the board have put out what they think is going to happen. Can we read anything into the way that the share price has moved as to what the outcome of this might be? As I say, their performance has been positive in the last six months, but it's been, in relative terms, disappointing, which is, of course, the great conundrum of all fund management that we have to we distinguish all the time between the two, not whether we're making money, but whether we're making money compared to our competitors. So they have been trading on a big discount. Are they still trading on a big discount? They are trading on a, on a discount. The discount has narrowed. So in the last 12 months, uh, it averaged about 20% or so. It's probably coming to nearer to about 16% now. But if you look at their performance year to date, they're probably up about 13% or so. So they've certainly uh, had a little bit of a run uh, in the last few weeks. Um, so there is certainly some excitement one would see in, the, in terms of the share price. I was only thinking really in terms of the fact that if we thought that the board was going to lose this vote and the thing would be wound up, that you'd think that the discount would start to narrow. You would think that would happen, would you not? Yeah, I mean, we'll see obviously as we go through the month. I mean, the fact that the board have said that uh, they believe that shareholders are in favour of uh, continuation at 40% uh, that they've been able to talk to so far have, have made those kind of supportive noises probably makes you think there's a, there's a little bit of a standoff here. It's worth noting as well that the, the continuation vote is an ordinary resolution, so which requires 50% of shares cast, but the actual realisation would be a special resolution. So that's a 75% vote. So if you have actually got a 40% block, then that makes that one a little bit trickier. I guess it's fair to say in the past, we've seen episodes like this where continuation votes have passed, but there's still been some changes in the way that the board operates the company. So that's another possibility. And presumably where you've got two shareholders who are obviously not happy with what's been going on, if they continue to own the shares, that's going to act as a little bit of an overhang, you'd think, on the on the share price. So we might still see some other proposals from the board. Is that Would that follow a traditional pattern if that was the case? You make a good point about the overhang. I mean, these two shareholders own 7 to 8%. And, and clearly, we'll find out they, there might be other shareholders who have a similar mind to them. So this could be seen as an overhang. And the fact that it has averaged a 20% discount over the last year suggests that there is probably more sellers than buyers over that period. But uh, you couldn't certainly rule out further corporate action. Okay, so that's one to watch. Uh, Let's move on to overseas trust now. Uh, JP Morgan Emerging Markets Investment Trust, a big investment trust. What's uh, they had to say? 
So JP Morgan Emerging Markets Investment Trust had its interim results for the six months to the end of December. Uh, a decent set of results. This one, the NAV total return was up about 25%, and that compared with rise for its benchmark uh, near to about 19%. In share price terms, it was even stronger, probably up about 33%, as the discount narrowed from about 9%. Uh, to 3%, so completely re-rated. And yes, a good story here. Austin Forey, a very uh, experienced manager, has done a good job for shareholders over a number of years. And uh, an interesting uh, investment manager's report in the interim results, when he talks about the challenges and opportunities that face companies at the moment in terms of digitalization, the rise of China, and a low-carbon economy, um, and talks about how companies seek to create value with those three key factors as a, a backdrop. But yeah, a strong period of performance for this one. And emerging markets have been uh, popular, at least. They've been, uh, many people have been recommending emerging markets on the grounds that they're relatively cheap. How is the sector trading at the moment? So as I said, JP Morgan emerging markets has been re-rated. It actually finds itself on a premium at the moment, probably about a 1%, 2% premium. Um, overall, that's certainly at the kind of one end of the spectrum. Um, Templeton Emerging Markets, that's had a little bit of a run recently. That finds itself on a 5% discount, and that compares with an average of 10% over the last 12 months. And you look at some of the other names there, Genesis Emerging Markets, I think that we talked about relatively recently, that finds itself on a 6% discount. Again, its average over the previous 12 months is actually an 11% discount. So we are seeing these discounts tighten in, and that's obviously beneficial in share price terms to performance. Okay, let's move on to Pacific Horizon, PHI. They've also had some interim results, but uh, confusingly for a slightly different period. What's the story there? How does that compare? So they had interim results out for the six months to the end of January. NAV total return was up about 45%, and that compared with a rise of about 21% for its benchmark. In share price terms, uh, even stronger, up 53% as the premium increased to 10% uh, during that period. And obviously, a number of stock holdings in the portfolio did particularly well for it, including C Limited, Tata Motors, and Nickel Mines were the largest contributors in the, the period. Uh, they've also got 3% of the portfolio invested in unlisted equities as well. But the fact that it's trading on a decent premium has allowed it to issue a number of shares and they actually raised additional capital of $116 million during that six-month period. So this is another Bailey Gifford Trust. Uh, has that been affected by the same kind of sell-off in the last two or three weeks that we've seen in the China trusts and uh, in uh, some other Asian trusts? Yeah, so you're right. It has seen its share price weaken. And in fact, over the last month or so, it's probably fallen about 7% or so. And that compares with a decline of 1% uh, for its uh, NAV. So that premium rating that I mentioned, it's still on a premium, but it's fallen to about a 5% level or so now. Okay, so let's move on now to some specialist trusts. There have also been some significant results out this week. Let's start with one which is uh, has been going a long time, BlackRock World Mining does what it says on the tin pretty much, though it has changed its strategy a little bit in the last few years. They've had some annual results. What have they been doing? A strong set of results for BlackRock World Mining. The annual results for the year ended 31st of December. NAV total return of nearly 32% in that time, and that compares with a rise of 21% for their benchmark, uh, which is the MSCI All Country World Index Metals and Mining 30% buffer 1040 index, which is a complete mouthful. But suffice to say, they beat it. And in share price terms, they did even better, up 47%. Uh, 
So a very strong period of performance. It's worth noting that the revenue per share was down year on year, which is probably not a surprise. It was down about 9% or so to 20.4p. And actually what they've done is that they've reduced their dividend, their total dividend for the year down 8% to 20.3p. So in other words, they've decided to pay a covered dividend. Uh, and that's been the, the policy on this investment trust now for a few years, that they, they, they've always made it quite clear they would pay out the income that they received in any given period. But the outlook for the sector is, is very positive. We caught up with Evie Hambro and Olivia Markham just recently on these results, and they're very positive on the prospects of the resources sector, given the likely demand and, in fact, the limited supply as well. I mean, they talked about the idea of having a global synchronised infrastructure spend and how that would be a driver uh, and also the fact that the, there is actually far more discipline now in terms of the major resources companies than perhaps was once the case. So they are very positive on the prospects for the for the asset class. Well, you mentioned their new benchmark, and it is a bit of a mouthful. I mean, I remember there was a little bit of controversy because they changed their benchmark a couple of years ago, did they not? And um, some people thought that was always a, something to be a little bit suspicious of, but the results appear to be good. But in terms of the yield and so on, if you compare that to, say, some of the other trusts, for example, if you're you know, in an equity income trust, how, how do the yields compare? Yeah, just on that point about the benchmark, because you're right, a few people have picked up on that. But it's worth saying that in this particular year, their old uh, benchmarks so the EMIX Global Mining Index was up about 22%. So in other words, they significantly outperformed it. So um, it hasn't been that they've just adopted a, a slightly more favourable uh, benchmark. Um, in terms of the yield, they're probably yielding not too far off 4% or so at the moment, 3.8%. And again, in their particular peer group, um, there are a few other uh, investment trusts that offer uh, not dissimilar levels of yield. So in fact, one of their, their stable mate, the BlackRock Energy and Resources Income Fund, that's 4.3% on a historic basis. And the CQS Natural Resources Growth and Income Fund is 4.2%. But I think you alluded to it earlier, they did change uh, the way that they approached the kind of sector a few years ago, and the the dividend became a more important part of the story. But they're they're very positive again on the prospects for the revenue that the investment trust will receive in, in 2021. As we've discussed, the revenue was down last year, but that reflected the fact that a number of the, the major resources companies were quite cautious during that first half of the year for understandable reasons. And so now the prospects, given rising commodity prices for increased dividends, have have grown. And the commodity sector generally is always, uh, it's obviously boom or bust. Normally it goes through these cycles of, you know, investment and then uh, overinvestment. And, and that's how you get these big swings in commodity prices. And I guess that's always had an impact on the way that BlackRock World Mining is uh, trades. So I wouldn't be at all surprised, as I say, that they would trade at a premium now or around par anyway. But that's not always been the case, has it? No, that's right. Uh, I mean, in fact, Evie Hambro <laughs> talks about it today. I think he said that when they launched this investment trust, which I think was back in the 90s, it briefly touched a 40% premium, despite the fact uh, a lot of the portfolio was still in cash. And then uh, since then, I think there's only been one other occasion when it's actually been on a premium. Uh, it currently is. Uh, it's achieved that in the recent weeks and months. And on a, it's on about a 4% premium or so at the moment. So they are looking to issue some shares into that to ensure that that premium doesn't become too extended. But yeah, it's a, it's a very interesting thing that we did see this big economic downturn last year, and yet the resources sector performed so well. And again, the managers made this point that that's not more normally what you'd expect in an economic downturn. Obviously, there's been a real economic shock last year. You wouldn't expect resources to, to do well. They normally get hit quite hard. But it is very, very different this time. 
Indeed it is. Well, let's move on and talk about another trust, which is a different sector. And this is BB Healthcare Trust, the Healthcare Investment Trust. Uh, they've had some annual results too. What's their story? So BB Healthcare Trust had its results out for the 12 months to the end of November. And in that time, they generated an NAV total return of 25% of that compared with a rise of 10% for their benchmark. In share price terms, they came out about 23% or so, just with the premium uh, slipping to a very small discount. But uh, over the last three years, or the the three-year period to the end of November, their total share price return was about 59% compared with 43% for the benchmark. They're also proposing a full-year dividend of 6.03p, and that's for the financial year for 2021. Uh, And they've been able to take advantage of that premium rating by issuing some shares into it. Yes, they're another trust where they actually do put a lot of effort into their annual report and their annual results statement. Uh, Well worth reading. There's a long piece by the investment managers uh, led by Paul Major about both the outlook for healthcare and more specifically about where we are in the market cycle as well, which is unusual for specialist, perhaps um, fund manager to talk about the markets generally. Uh, But it's quite interesting because obviously healthcare is a different kind of growth area from mining and metals. Well worth a read in any event. Let's move on and talk about Bluefield Solar Income. They've had some half-year results out. We know they're in the renewable energy sector, obviously. What's the story there? So they had their interim results for the six months to the end of December. NAV total return was about 3.5%, and their dividends in line with the 8P target for the uh, the full financial year of 2021, and the board is confident of meeting that target. So the underlying earnings in the period were about 4.6p per share. And in terms of kind of the moving parts within the portfolio, generation was about 1.5% below expectation and irradiation was 1.6% lower. However, the energy price achieved was actually 3.1% higher, which meant that the total revenue was above budget um, by about 1.5%. And they've maintained their discount rate at uh, 6%. Uh, probably quite interesting, they've actually now extended the life of over half the portfolio. And at the end of this period, debt was equivalent to 44% of gross assets. Uh, and that's within their target range. Well, we might come back to talking about the overall position in the renewables market. But let's quickly cover the results of a couple others. We've got uh, Greencoat Renewables. You mentioned Greencoat UK Wind, but this is their renewables broader investment fund uh, in renewable energy, GRP, they had some annual results out as well. How did they do? Yep. So they had their annual results to the end of December last year. Their NAV was down slightly during that period. It went from one euro, three cents to one euro and one cent. And that was a result of uh, lower short term inflation assumptions in Ireland, where the portfolio is largely exposed to. But they declared a total dividends of 6.06 cents and they were 1.7 times covered. And they maintained their dividend target for 2021 as well. Uh, portfolio generation was about 3% below budget in the period. Okay, and then moving on, we also have Premier Might and Global Renewables. That's a PMGR. They've also had some annual results, so we could compare them as well. Yep, so they had their annual results to the end of December. And this is a um, effectively a split capital investment trust. So they have two share classes. So at a total asset level, the total return was up 16.5%. But in terms of the ordinary share class, the NAV total return was near to about 30%, 29.5%. And its share price total return was up 31%. Uh, and that obviously represented an outperformance of the FTSE All World Index, which is up 13%. 
and indeed the FTSE Global Core Infrastructure 5050 Index, which actually fell in the period. On the ordinary share class, they paid a total dividends of 10.2p. Their revenue per share was actually 9.32p, uh, so that had actually fallen year on year. But it's worth bearing in mind with this one that there was actually a change of investment policy last year, and they're now focusing on listed global renewable energy companies. And the life of the investment trust has been extended out to their AGM in 2025. They issued some um, zero dividend preference shares at the end of last year, which I think we've talked about before. They didn't raise quite as a large amount as they wanted. Uh, and as a result of that, their, their gearing level has decreased. And so the kind of knock-on effect of that is that their dividend for 2021, it will be lower. They expect it to be at least 7p. Right. So it's therefore, it's difficult to make direct comparisons between these different trusts as a result because of the of the gearing and the split capital structure and so on. Obviously, um, the gearing there obviously helped them overall during the period compared to, say, green coat renewables. Would that be a fair comment? And how do, how do, but how do these uh, various renewable energy trusts trading? So we've We've got Bluefield Solar, we've got Greencoat Renewables, and we've got Premier Might and Global Renewables. Uh, is there a significant difference in the way that they trade? So Bluefield Solar and the Greencoat Renewables Fund, they're both on uh, quite significant premiums at the moment. So Bluefield, uh, probably on about a 16 17% premium to NAV. Greencoat Renewables uh, on about a 15% premium at the moment. Uh, and in terms of the yield that those two offer, it's 5.2% for Greencoat Renewables. And for Bluefield Solar, um, it's even it's a bit higher, actually. It's 5.9%. Uh, and if my memory serves me right, I think they have a policy of, of paying out uh, all their revenue that they receive uh, in the year. Premier Might and Global Renewables, it's obviously a slightly different structure. It's, it's trading quite well. So it's on a relatively small discount for about 3% or so. But it's a, it's a much smaller vehicle. Um, it's, it's got a market cap of about £28 million pounds or so at the moment. So um, a smaller vehicle. And obviously, it's yield on a historic basis. It's probably about 6.5%. But that yield will come down, obviously, uh, if they do come in at 7p, as they've uh, suggested for next year. So in general terms, the sector continues to trade on a significant premium and uh, the yield is the big attraction still. Let's move on and talk about some property trusts. Let's start with Triple Point Social Housing. That's Soho for short. It's had some annual results out. This is an interesting sector, social housing. Uh, what's been the story? What have they had to say? Yep, so they had their annual results for the year to the end of December. In terms of their NAV equivalent, so it's the EPRA NTA, they were up 1% in the period. And obviously, we talked before about the property market and how a number have seen that NAV slip during the year, but that's not the case in this instance. As you say, it's, it's all social housing, as its name would suggest. Uh, and they've made some various new investments during the year. But in terms of the earnings per share, um, they were up quite solidly on the year to 4.61p. And in fact, the dividends have been declared of uh, 5.18p per share. And uh, that represents an increase uh, from the previous year as well. So um, they're making progress in terms of uh, in investing in additional property and actually growing their dividend. Okay, so let's move on to another one, which is in a very different sector. This is the supermarket income REIT. That's S-U-P-R. They've also had uh, some interim results in this case. Yep, interim results to the end of December. Uh, and again, their uh, EPRA NTA per share was up 3% in the period. Uh, so they're, again, moving on positively. I think we've talked in recent weeks, the fact they've been able to raise additional capital and they've been able to get that to work. In terms of their earnings per share, 
they're making progress. So the earnings per share was 2.8p for the period, and that compares with 2.5p, 2.5p in the comparable period in 2019. So they've declared dividends uh, in respect of the half year of 2.9p, and that puts them on track to meet their financial year target of 5.86p per share. And perhaps unsurprisingly, they've collected 100% of their rent in the period. Indeed. Uh, I guess that may not be the same for GCP student living, uh, where we can <laughs> find out about that. Their ticker is DIGS, D-I-G-S. They've had interim results as well. What's the story there? Yeah, interim results for the six months to the end of December. Their EPRA NTA was down about 0.3% in the period. Though actually the share total return was up nearly 17%, and that reflects the recovery in the share price uh, since their financial year end, i.e. the 30th of June. But again, yeah, quite a few moving parts with this. Clearly, student property has been quite a tough area over the last 12 months or so. And just to put some numbers on that, their bookings for the 2020-21 academic year, so where we find ourselves at the moment, are standing about 68% or so at the moment, uh, which is obviously a lot lower than you would normally expect. And in fact, they've agreed to rental concessions uh, of up to 100% for the six-week period just to help out the students using their accommodation. And that will cost up to £2 million or so in terms of the maximum loss of rental income. Unsurprisingly, the directors have decided to reduce the dividend in order to preserve capital reserves, but they are still paying a dividend. The dividend of about uh, 0.5p per share has been declared in respect of this period, the six-month period, and they're going to review the dividend on a quarterly basis. But really, the story here is you know, what happens from this point in time. Um, obviously, the hope is that uh, things go back to normal as quickly as possible, and that includes students attending universities and using student accommodation. So in terms of looking for kind of recovery plays or the economy uh, coming back online, then I suspect this is a name that some people will be looking at. Very good. So this is another story about the pandemic, essentially the difference between the various uh, property trusts that we discussed, supermarket, social housing and student living, a very varied experience over the past year. So that brings us to the end of this week's podcast. And uh, as I said, it's been quite an interesting week for a lot of reasons. A lot of focus will be on the performance of Scottish Mortgage and the Technology Trust and the China Trust, all of which have come uh, rocketing down in the last few days. So um, I guess there's plenty to look forward to next week, Sam. Indeed. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. The website also has details of how to join the Moneymakers Circle, our premium content subscription service, offering more interviews, portfolio updates and market commentary. Thank you for listening and please keep safe in these difficult times.